The Uncover Up Conspiracy Podcast is about to record their 100th episode. To celebrate this momentous occasion, Professor Radke will be getting a tattoo on his arm. And to thank you for getting us here, you can have a say in which tattoo he gets. Two designs will be posted to the Instagram feed, at The Uncover Up, and whichever one receives the most likes by January 15th, 2023, will be the one that gets inked. And now, on with the show. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to The Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and joining me today in the bunker is Dr. Lee Kunla. Hey, Nathan. I have a story. Yes. I want to start off with a story. Yeah, this, this is, a, this this is a true story. And it comes from one of our listeners. Yeah, that's right. Uh, we who, have some... who we cannot identify. No, we've, we know who the person is. Yeah. But we can't say who they are. We, we can't tell you. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do have some amazing listeners. Yeah. Hello, all you amazing listeners. Yeah. Here's the story. This person has some connection to some fairly high-level U.S. Air Force engineering projects and things like that. And this story comes through him of a friend of his in the early 1960s who was flying across the uh, American desert in the southwest in an F-100. Okay. For us non-airplane geeks, what is an F-100? I know it's an airplane. I learned that much at the uh, Air Force base that we went to. And it's a, because it's an F, it's a fighter. Hey, that's right. Right? Well done. Huh? And because it's a 100, it's part of the Century Series fighters, which means that it's sort of an early Cold War model. I see. Okay. Also, because it's a 100 series, it means it was a terrible plane. <laughs> because all of the one, all the Century Series, anyway, I won't get into it. Okay, so, 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 so this man... I assume it's a man in yep. the 60s, is flying a, a U.S. fighter jet. Yeah. Which at the time was probably, though, still a pretty good jet, right? Well, the F-100, I mean, I'm not going to get too far into it, but let's just say that they they didn't land. They never You never landed in an F-100. <laughs> you had a controlled crash. Right, okay. But he's still in the air at this point, so he okay. isn't worrying about having this eventual controlled crash. Right. He's flying across the desert, going Mach 1, and thinking to himself, you know what? I might be the fastest person in America right now. Yeah. Like, not everybody is barreling around going, like, the speed of sound. And there he is, 30,000 feet, like, going Mach 1, thinking, ah, I'm a bit of a hotshot. Yeah. However, as he is doing this, he looks up through his canopy and he sees something bizarre. What he sees is something three times higher than him. So, like, 90,000 feet, 100,000 feet, going three times as fast as he is. Okay. Now, he knows enough about planes, this guy, to know that that is impossible. Right. I was going to say, I don't know that much about planes, but that's higher than planes are supposed to be able to fly at that time, yeah, right? Yeah, it's basically space. Yeah. And at a speed that is unthinkable. Like, they had just broken the speed of sound, like, only a little over a decade earlier. Okay. And so this is really strange, but his day gets even stranger. Okay. Because as he lands at the base, or control crashes because he's in F-100, <laughs> and he climbs out of the wreckage of his vehicle, he is greeted by some men okay, in suits. Okay. And they... I feel like I know where this is going. Exactly, you know where this is going. And these men tell him, you know what, like, you did not see anything up there. Wow. So th- these are the men in black. These are the men in black, which 
Interestingly enough, even though this is like our 98th episode, we've never actually done an episode on the Men in Black. We have not. And and I, I, this is because there is so much out there in the world of conspiracies. People worry that we're going to run out. And at our 98th episode, there's still one of these like core topics, even in the alien UFO field that we haven't touched on. Yeah. So, but that we're, we're rectifying that today. We're talking about Men in Black. And we thought we'd start with an example of something that actually has happened. And of course, we wanted to start with the story from one of our listeners, but we know from the historical record uh, that this has happened in the past, right? I know Men in Black, my first introduction to this very concept was through the film well, was it to the film? No, it wasn't because there were Men in Black in, in the X-Files, X-Files. And that preceded and the that film. that was before, yeah. Right? Okay. So in the X-Files, you had these government agents. They probably worked for the CIA or maybe something even more secret. And they would show up where there were UFO sightings. If it was a good sighting, there were people, especially civilians there, and they would tell people you didn't see anything. And often... Whatever they said on top of that uh, scared people so much that they didn't talk afterwards. Yeah, and there was something even stranger about the men in black. There was always a sort of like weird, absurd aspect to them. So that if you tried to tell the story to someone else, nobody's going to believe you. Right. Like they'd show up in this weird car and, and strangely... Like a kind of an old like Cadillac. An old, yeah, like a, not a modern car, but like a weird old car that yeah. have a very strange way of speaking. They might have weird grammar. And so if you tried to tell somebody, hey, this is what happened to me, you end up sounding kind of ridiculous. Right. I, I'm, I'm imagining as you're talking Agent Smith from The Matrix, who is like super normal, and yet there is something kind of weird about his normalness. It's, something uncanny valley. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Who are the men in black? I think that's one of the questions that we want to answer today. And I think... A good way to go about a problem like this is maybe to try and see if we can get something from the source. Like, what does the CIA have to say about an event like this? And it just so happens, I have in front of me an article written by a man named Gerald K. Haynes, who at the time of the publication of this article, which was in the mid-90s, is the National Reconnaissance Office historian. He's basically the historian for the CIA. And he wrote an article entitled CIA's Role in the Study of UFOs, 1947 to 1990. It really tracks the history of the CIA's involvement in alien sightings, flying saucer sightings. And it's not just, sorry, not just about the CIA, but also about the Air Force. And this article is basically a review. And in it, He also discusses some CIA responses to sightings. And while we're going to talk more about this article, I thought I'd come up with a second story to to go along with the one that Nathan just shared. And this one takes place in 1955. That basically puts it at the height of flying saucer mania. That's certainly also what this author, Gerald Haynes, says is that, you know, the 50s was really the heyday of the flying saucer flaps and manias. Starts in the 1940s, is huge in the 1950s, still there in the 1960s, and kind of wanes in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. 
Although it also sort of transforms. It's interesting. And we'll do an episode on just exactly how the flying saucer idea changes throughout the decades and becomes, I think, more and more sinister as time goes on. Yeah. And there we also did a previous episode in which uh, Paul Benowitz was the victim of a disinformation campaign along this line. And that happened in the 80s, as you say. And so there are these really sinister elements. But what happens in 1955? Well, we're in a flap. We're in this kind of UFO sightings are happening all over the place. They're being reported all over the place. And I mean, at that point, it was only a couple of years after there was what basically seemed to some people like a UFO attack on Washington, D.C. Right. One yeah. of the biggest UFO flaps ever. Yeah. And not far out from the battle over Los Angeles. I mean, that was... The death just... of Captain Mantell, exactly. who was sent after a UFO and then crashed his plane and died. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So there is, a, there is certainly in the public imagination, there is a mounting... Uh, it's on the front burner. It's Yeah, there's evidence that's accumulating and people are starting, uh, some people are starting to take it quite seriously. In fact, the article starts out citing a study that was done in the 70s that say 95% of all Americans have read or heard about UFOs and 57% believe that they are real. And I think what real here means, because of course we've talked that UFOs are just unidentified flying objects. So there's no question that... They 100% exist. But I think the survey is suggesting that they're people believe extraterrestrial. they're extraterrestrial spaceships. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it is uh, 1955, and Mildred and Mary Meyer report that they have had a UFO encounter of sorts. Basically, they have gotten a recording. They've recorded sounds from what they claim is outer space. And it's a very bizarre and it's weird. And they make their claims known in the Journal of Spaceflight. So this is like, I guess, one of these UFO zines at the time. This does get the interest of some officials who have been told in various ways, and we've looked at Project Sign, Grudge, Blue Book, you know, there is official interest in UFO sightings because who knows, and we'll talk about this in a second, it could be the Russians, it could be foreign tech, it could be some kind of maybe even natural threat to America. So uh, there was official interest. There is an officer who goes and talks to them, uh, uh, that is Mildred and Mary Meyer, and gets the recording. Now, the recording is sent off, and it is determined to actually have been Morse code. So they would have been listening on some kind of ham radio object. They think they're picking up something mysterious. It turns out to be kind of slightly... What's the word I'm looking for? You're a sound guy. What what happens, like, when you play guitar and you add effects to Interference. it? Yeah, thank you. So it'll be like... Morse code with some interference, maybe it wasn't so readily discernible that it was Morse code, but it was Morse code. So that's the end of the story. Except for the fact that two years later, there's a UFO researcher, and this term is maybe going to come up a lot, they're called ufologists, and his name is Leon Davidson. And he's part of this phenomenon that's happening in the 50s where there are community organizations that are sort of like Project Blue Book going and checking out people who've seen stuff and checking especially the really good sightings to see maybe they can get behind what's going on. 
I think this is almost like a precursor of the uh, JFK sleuths, uh, the citizen sleuths that happen after his assassination. A lot of people start kind of investigating on their own. Davidson contacts uh, the Air Force. And he's like, so you guys, because the, it's both the CIA and the Air Force is tracking UFOs. And he's like, so you guys talk to these uh, women. You got the recording. I'd love to see the recording. And they're like, well, we, we don't have the recording. It was analyzed by the, quote, proper authorities. Hmm. So he gets frustrated and he keeps writing and, and he writes to Alan Dulles, which if I am not mistaken, he is the head of the CIA, is he not? Yeah. And so the ufologist Leon Davidson is writing to uh, Alan Dulles of the CIA being like, where's the recording? What's happening? What um, Leon Davidson discovers is that actually the agent who went to talk to Marie and Mildred was actually an undercover CIA agent. So he's contacting the Air Force. They don't seem to know much about it. He contacts the CIA. They blame the Air Force. He's getting the runaround, and he is eventually able to catch the CIA in a lie where they said, oh, yeah, we analyzed the recording. It turns out they hadn't analyzed it. What's important to note is that the lie is not that the CIA is hiding actual information about UFOs, but he does catch them in a lie. And what this story, which is actually quite public at the time, leads to is like your story, the sense that, no, there are actually agents within the government who are going undercover to look for people who've had sightings and find out what they know and maybe tell them to stop or get the stuff that they found and kind of cover it up a bit. Yeah. If you encounter a UFO in the 1950s and you make that public, you are going to possibly get the attention of some federal authorities. And not only that, but you're going to get the attention of the federal authorities in this weird way where they're sending these people over who are misrepresenting themselves, who are even saying like lies about who they are and where they're from. And that's not something that you should normally have in what's allegedly a free and open society. Like, you always want to be able to identify any kind of officer of your government. Yeah. Same thing with police officers. You want police officers to have badges. And if I am interested in UFOs, and then some shadowy figures from the government show up, grab all the stuff I have about it, and then lie about what they did with that information or who they, as you say, who they are, misrepresent themselves, what conclusion am I going to form? I think for a lot of people, and it seems entirely reasonable to me as I'm narrating this, you conclude that they know stuff about UFOs that they don't want us to know about. There is clearly a cover-up going on. There is clearly a cover-up going on. And remember that this example that I've given comes actually from a CIA report. Now, just as Nathan said, though, Earlier in that article, they talk about the Robertson panel, which was a scientific panel called together to look into what should we do about these sightings. Their findings were kept secret, but we know now the Robertson panel had recommended, just as Nathan said, that actually the CIA should keep tabs on civilian organizations. And here I'll just quote what it says. Reporting at the height of McCarthyism, the panel also recommended that such private UFO groups 
as the civilian flying saucer investigators in Los Angeles and the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization in Wisconsin be monitored for subversive activities. So we know that these groups were being monitored. We have just two accounts, even and one coming directly from the uh, from a CIA historian, that yeah, we misrepresented ourselves. We went in, we did this stuff. We've looked in previous episodes at what happened to Paul Benowitz and the Air Force Special Agent uh, Richard, Richard Doty, Doty. Uh, which was quite scandalous. I think uh, is is the best way to put it. Hi, this is podcast editor Nathan Radke interrupting the episode for a second. Lee and I have been diving into conspiracies for so long that we sometimes forget that not everyone is as much of a colossal nerd as we are. And sometimes we'll mention something assuming it's common knowledge when it clearly isn't. Paul Benowitz was an engineer born in the city of La Crosse, Wisconsin, also home to the brilliant physicist Dr. Shelley Lesher. In the 1970s, Benowitz became interested in the UFO movement, and when he started seeing strange lights and detecting weird signals on his radio equipment, he reported it to the U.S. Air Force. The Air Force realized that Benowitz had accidentally stumbled onto one of their secret projects, and in an attempt to prevent anyone from believing him, Special Agent Richard Doty fed him disinformation about how there was a massive alien base buried underground nearby, and how the aliens were experimenting with human-alien hybrids. Benowitz believed Doty and became obsessed with the lies that Doty was telling him, at the cost of Benowitz's family, livelihood, and eventually his freedom after he was institutionalized. We know that the government is interfering, or the CIA and the Air Force and their special branches, the secret special branches, are interfering in American citizens who are seeing this stuff. And, and, and this sounds to me a lot like the men in black. Yeah, and they're always doing it in the same way. They're always doing it in a way that they are trying to discredit anybody who comes forward to say they've seen a UFO. They are willing to basically harass or hound or terrify people who have come forward to say that they have seen a UFO. They are publicly ridiculing people who come out and say they've seen a UFO. It's always the same thing. The American government in the 50s and the 60s and even decades afterwards had, an, had official policies to try to mock anyone who said that they had seen UFO, which is why so many pilots who had been seeing UFOs, of course, were really, really hesitant up until like a couple of years ago to actually come out and say, no, I'm seeing weird stuff in the sky. Exactly. This seems to point to the fact that what was represented for us in the 90s in the X-Files and in a more comedic way in that film with Will Smith and is it Tommy Lee Jones? It is. That these men in black are for real. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, going back to the CIA report, like what are they worried about? They don't know what these UFOs are. Each report keeps coming to the conclusion that actually most of it can be explained because it's a mis apprehension of otherwise explainable phenomenon, often sun reflecting off of something. An incredible statistic I found in here is that maybe as many as 50% of all sightings are down to the U-2 and the ox cart. But now, they're also... Th these are, of course, for people who don't oh, know as much goodness. about airplanes as you, <laughs> these are top secret spy planes. Man, I'm feeling very smart suddenly, 100 episodes in almost. Okay, they're also, though, worried about 
Russians having a grab German scientists and working on foreign tech in Russia, some kind of like super fast flying machine. And I'm going to throw it to Nathan right now because he has two examples of this. We know that the Canadians and Americans were building an actual flying saucer. Yeah. And we, we, we know that the Americans also got a whole bunch of Nazi scientists to help them with their science, especially rocketry. So what were these two projects that actually lend a lot of credence to this worry that maybe the Russians were building UFOs? Well, it's interesting when you look back at some of the internal memos in the Air Force and in the CIA, they were taking all of these reports from people about flying saucers very seriously. But while there was a faction of the American government that considered the possibility that it was some kind of extraterrestrial thing, for the most part, they were very concerned that these were Soviet. Yeah. And the reason that they were worried about that is because, of course, as we've talked about before, during World War II, Hitler was obsessed with bizarre weapons. Mm -hmm. And we have all sorts of examples of that. We have the Messerschmitt 163 rocket plane, which was just a, an absolute catastrophe. What was that thing that was like a diving bell? Oh, yeah. Well, that I don't think that actually existed. Okay. Yeah, that was... that. We, we talked about that when we talked about Kecksburg. Right. But I don't think it actually existed. Okay. And the Germans were fielding a lot of wild experimental aircraft that nobody else was coming close to. Uh, in particular, there were a couple engineers called the Horton Brothers. And the Horton Brothers in Germany were working on flying wings. Right. And a flying wing because that wasn't obvious to me until I actually saw one, is an airplane where the the body of the airplane is merged into the wings of the airplane. So you can imagine it as basically like, often they're in the shape of a triangle. Yeah, it looks like a triangle or a boomerang, something yeah. like that, but it's like very a kite. strange. Yeah, and at a time when every other airplane looked like an airplane, right. to have these flying wings, that was pretty weird. And especially because in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, the American Air Force started building flying wings, things like the, the B-2 or right. the F-117. Of course, I know all of those. Yeah. <laughs> and so back in the 40s and 50s, the American government was like, hmm, what if, for example, the Soviets got a hold of some German scientists like maybe the Horton brothers, and maybe they have put together some kind of strange new aircraft? Yeah. And the Americans were particularly worried about the Soviets grabbing Nazi scientists after the war, because, of course, the American government was grabbing Nazi scientists after the war with Operation Paperclip. Yeah, and Andy Jacobson's got a great book entitled uh, Project Paperclip. So if you want, you know, a couple hundred pages just elaborating that, that whole operation, it's there. Yeah, it's a grim read, though, because a lot of these scientists were doing some truly terrible things during the war. Yeah human experimentation. These are people who should have been tried afterwards, but they were useful. And so instead they were brought into the American government and into the CIA. Right. So that was one project, uh, Paperclip. Another one was called Silverbug. And this is a fascinating one. Because portions of the American government became so convinced these flying saucers were, were Soviet in nature, they thought, well, we've, what we've got here, I mean, it's the Cold War, Anytime one side has something and the other side doesn't have it, what you have there is a gap. Right. They were worried about the bomber gap, the missile gap. The psychic gap. The psychic gap. And that's why you had that program. But now we might have a flying saucer gap. Right. And so that's why they threw into motion Project Silverbug, which was an attempt to build 
an American flying saucer. And as you said, part of that took place not too far from the bunker in Malton, Ontario, at a place called Avro Canada, where they built a flying saucer called the Avro Car. Which we saw. Yeah, which we saw in real life at an Air Force base back in the summer. Right. So here's where we're at then at this point in the narrative. We have the CIA admitting uh, in the 90s that they were in fact sort of running projects against American civilians. They were dressing up as other as members of other agencies and going in and finding out what they knew about flying saucers. And bullying them. And bullying them. We know that there are legitimate reasons why they would be interested in doing this and why they might be concerned. There was also an element, and this is reported in Project Blue Book, of uh, the Air Force, certainly, because these are not monolithic institutions that have just one person running them, there were people who were actually open to it being extraterrestrial. Maybe something's going on. But certainly it's a national security uh, risk or worry either way. Whatever it is, it's a a problem. It's a problem. We got to look into it. So, And then we have my story of an, an actual men in black encounter and your story of a men in black encounter. And we know that there are others and we've referenced Benowitz as well. Okay. So, oh, and we also know that this uh, CIA is keeping tabs on civilian UFO organizations. So what a mess. Well, that's, so this is where I think the men in black story is really compelling and speaks to certainly a certain kind of truth historically that you know people were experiencing and makes a lot of sense historically so at this point maybe i should state sort of the pop culture version of who the men in black are okay they are a top secret quasi-governmental organization that are either actively trying to hide the reality of alien interaction with humans or because these guys often are so strange they might even be aliens themselves. Yes, I was I was curious if you were going to get to that second thesis because that's a less popular one today, but that has been part of the mythology around uh, men in black is that maybe they themselves are aliens or like... Or uh, working with the aliens. It, exactly. Like, and again, I'm thinking of the movie with Will Smith where they're kind of, they get, you know, there's like good aliens and they get help from them occasionally and stuff like that. So yeah. This is the pop culture version, which seems to be actually, well, with the potential excessive interpretation of them and themselves being extraterrestrials, seems to accord with both a historical record and a certain historical logic. Yeah. And while we've been like researching several of the things that we've talked about on this on this podcast, we've kind of bumped into the men in black in history. When we looked into things like the Kecksburg UFO, when we looked into something like Mothman, West Virginia was just littered with these men in black. I keep forgetting that the audience can't see me nodding, but sometimes in these prolonged silences, I'm vigorously nodding as Nathan is talking. It's true. <laughs> Not always, though. And so, like, where is the truth? In this world of cover-ups and lies, there's something to this. There's a pop culture idea of this. What is the truth? And like, where do these ideas come from? Well, I thought to answer that question, we'd start with a narration of exactly an experience of men in black. This story comes from They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, uh, written by Gray Barker and published in 1956. Now, a lot of 
people who are not UFO buffs or U- ufologists um, may not have heard about Gray Barker. I've been saying UFOologist this whole time. So have I, but I was, I just kept... Which means I'm using the O twice. Well, it, this was... UFOologist. That's what got me to rephrase it, because I was like, this is not working for me. I keep I keep adding letters when I say UFOologist. Ufologist. Ufologist, Ufologist. and that makes sense, right? Because it would go according... UFOlogist. Well, and it would be, as Captain Ruppelt pronounced it, who was the inventor of that term ufo oh yeah he wanted it to be ufo he wanted it to be ufo that did and not it, catch on no but it works better as ufologist that's true right okay anyway uh, somebody interested in ufos <laughs> either is a ufo logist or a ufologist anyway now i'm off track now what the heck oh yeah you gray may Barker. not you may not know gray barker's work directly but you do know uh his work you have encountered it in a lot of the lore that today really characterizes what a UFO is. So he's written a nonfiction book. It's called They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, in which he is basically, he basically goes through a bunch of sightings, but the real kernel of the book is what happens when an acquaintance of his named Bender So his acquaintance, Albert K. Bender, uh, starts precisely one of these citizen sleuth organizations dedicated to looking into what these UFO sightings are all about. And it's called the IFSB, or the International Flying Saucer Bureau. Bender is the chief director, but Gray Barker is made chief investigator. Gray Barker gets in on the ground floor. He becomes, a, you know, an important member of what ends up being a very short-lived organization. And the reason for that is as follows. Barker and then Bender is visited by Men in Black. And this scares Bender so much that he stops talking about UFOs and shuts down his organization. So it really only lasts about a year. Now, Barker, who's written this book, though, uh, really gives the template of the encounter with Men in Black. And so this this occurs on page 92 before he then gets into the specifics of what happens to him first and then his acquaintance, Bender. So this is Gray Barker writing now. Three men in black suits with threatening expressions on their faces. Three men who walk in on you and make certain demands. Three men who know that you know what the saucers really are. They don't want you to tell anyone else what you know. The answer has hit you like a flash. One night, when you had gone to bed, after running all the theories through the hopper of your brain, you had sat up in bed, snapped your fingers and said, This is it! I know I have the answer! The next day, the theory didn't sound as convincing to you as it did the night before. Nevertheless, it is a good one, and you had certain data which would more than halfway prove it. You wrote this down and sent it to someone. When three men came in your house, one of them had the very same piece of paper in his hand. They said that you, among thousands working on the same thing, had hit pay dirt. You had the answer. Then they filled you in with the details. After they got through with you, you wish you'd never heard the word saucer. You turned pale and got awful sick. You couldn't get anything to stay in your stomach for three long days. 
So here you got somebody like Bender who's like, oh, I'm interested in flying saucers. I'm going to form this association. Next thing you know, according to this book by Barker, you're getting basically muscled out of the business yeah. by these terrifying and mysterious men in black. Exactly. So what happened, um, and he recounts first then what happened to himself. So uh, Bender gets uh, business cards made up. And you know you've gotten a certain official level of, uh, how do I put this? You know that it's gotten official when somebody you're shows legit. up. Yeah, you're legit. When somebody, somebody shows up with business cards, this certainly happened. This was the feeling I got when Nathan showed up with Uncover Up business cards. I was like... This is legit. We exist. We are a real podcast now. So he gets business cards. Okay. Gray Barker gets business cards because he's chief investigating officer. So he hands out a couple of business cards. And a few weeks later, he's at home and knock, knock, knock. There are three guys at the door and they come in and lo and behold, they got his business card. They got this IFSB business card with his name on it. How did they get it? Yeah. Then they come up with some story about a guy who was in hospital, who Gray Barker's never heard of, and then they disappear. And, and Barker is left with the very distinct impression that something quite sinister has happened. He picks up the phone to Bender. Uh, Bender gets scared. And, and then this whole thing unravels. I feel like we're at this kind of crisis moment where it's like, okay, so wait, there are these guys, these men in black who are, who are sort of part of a shadow organization. Who knows what kind of laws even apply to them? I mean, do they get to like assassinate people or, you know, steal their money or make up lies about them? Are they even human? Yeah, that's the problem. That's the problem. So what, what strategies would we have to see if this story as we have told it is at all legitimate? Well, since the story is coming from this guy, Gray Barker, and Gray Barker is somebody that we have encountered before. Yeah, Mothman episode. Mothman episode, Gray Barker shows up. The Flatwoods Monster, which is one of the first UFO encounters with an alien that people have, have had in North America, that shows uh, well, and because he's like this gumshoe reporter who goes rushing off to these sightings. I mean, he's doing it very much as a, like a civilian. He has a day job. Yeah. But this is his thing. And this is why he's all over the place in the early UFO stories. And even in something like the Philadelphia Experiment. Yeah. Gray Barker's fingerprints are on that too. So I think part of the answer at least is we should probably look into this Gray Barker fella. Okay. Okay. Um, so tell me about Gray Barker. Who is this guy? Right. He is, well, let's see, how do I put this? I'm looking at the, the picture on the inside of this quite famous book. They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers was on the New York Times bestseller list for a number of weeks in 1956. So yeah. this, And the FBI was investigating it. I was looking through some FBI files about it where they're discussing Barker and this book and questioning whether maybe it's a problem that needs to be looked into. Okay. So I'm looking at his picture. He's a kind of wiry, tall man in his mid-30s. I'd say he's some kind of not from this picture, he looks quite like a Norman MacDonald lookalike, but in real life, because I've seen videos and, and talks by him, it's more of a mix between Norm MacDonald and a young Jimmy Carter. So he's tall, broad-shouldered, seems somewhat athletic, and uh, in this picture he's got, you know, a white shirt and a bow tie. I mean, he just looks like one of these 
gumshoe reporters. Like yeah. he really like 1950s UFO saucer chasing reporters. And he comes out of Virginia, West Virginia. Flatwoods is where he grew up. Yeah. Home of the Flatwoods monster, yeah. home of Mothman. So yeah. he, he's sort of born and grows up in what would eventually become a bit of a UFO and alien hotbed. Yeah. His day job is that he works as what's called, and this is a job that I don't think exists anymore. He was a booker. And what he did was he organized the films that were being shown in local drive-in movie theaters. Yeah, it was like back in the old days at radio stations, rather than some kind of giant corporation dictating what gets played, you'd have disc jockeys that would choose records and put them on. And that's what what he was for movies. Exactly. He was like a disc jockey for movies. He also had another side hustle as a school supply salesman. But then he was also super into all the flying saucer stuff, as a number of people were in the 50s. And this is when he's most active, although he is a, you know, he is a notable figure in the UFO community into the 80s. As I said, he basically goes and tracks down these sightings. He goes to the Mothman sighting, but then he goes to other key sightings. And he and he tries, you, you read what he's doing. I mean, he, he really bothers to go interview as many people as possible. There is a problem, though, with the book. <laughs> and it's, it's not a problem. Well, yeah, there are several problems, but there is one problem that is really, really important. And, and this, was, this was something that came as a revelation to me because it only was during the research that I discovered this. Gray Barker did hoaxes. Yes. This was what he was into. Yeah. So this isn't me sort of cherry picking data. This comes from his protege, a man named John C. Shermer, gets his journalistic start because Barker publishes a book that he's written at the tender age of 17. Now, this book was a fraudulent UFO encounter. Shermer knew it was. Barker knew it was, but Barker published it because he thought he was going to make money off of it. This gives Shermer a leg up and gives him his first uh, journalism job. And he then becomes an, a, you know, a journalist working in the field for the rest of his life, but later on develops regrets about the start of his career and about it was actually while sitting in a movie theater watching the trailer for the first Men in Black he kind of has this moment of realization that, oh my goodness, this is Gray Barker's fantasy. So Gray Barker is the guy who puts the mythology as we know it of the men in black into the world. So usually often, not always, mythologies, lies even, have a kernel of truth in reality. But the kind of men in black that X-Files or... Uh, the Men in Black film franchise depicts is based on Gray Barker's fiction that he passed off as nonfiction. So his deal is he writes books about claiming to be real encounters and knows them not to be true in order to make money. So this one of the people who blows the whistle is his protege, uh, John Shermer. Another one is Barker's best friend. And there's a documentary where they together, like he, he talks about this hoax that they made where they took pictures and video of a UFO that was actually like a wood model at the end of a fishing pole. And Barker is in a way responsible for some of the really hokey UFO quote unquote evidence that we have. 
He was not taken seriously in the 1950s by other serious ufologists or UFO researchers precisely because he kind of overplayed the wacky, silly aspects of the the whole scene. Like, he talked very much about Venusians, you know, the uh, um, aliens from Venus, and the aliens might be using Mars as their waylay station. And it, it was a little too hokey for those who are, like, really trying to get a handle on it. Well, there was almost a bit of a civil war in those early days. Different factions of UFOologists, or ufologists, where you had people like Major Donald Kehoe, who was legit worried about this phenomenon and was trying to get to the bottom of it. And people like Kehoe were kind of irritated by this sort of more theatrical group of ufologists who spent a lot of time talking about, you know, they were the contactees. They were the ones who claimed that they had encountered human-like aliens who took them to Venus or took them to Mars and had these sort of really elaborate kind of fantasy stories. Whereas the hardcore ufologists were like, no, no, like what's actually happening? We don't need all of this soft sci-fi stuff. We need the actual science behind it. Right. Yeah. And they would, I mean, again, there's been very serious research into UFOs. So it's around this time, give or take a couple of years that you have Frank Drake, who develops the Drake equation, which is a, you know, an attempt at a statistical guess at the likelihood of intelligence, extraterrestrial life in our galaxy. There are serious scientists who are considering the question in a serious way. There's soon to be the establishment, well, soon relatively, of SETI. There are serious people who are investigating this stuff. But since you talked about this sort of fringe element, and that's really where Barker was. Barker was talking to the fringe of the fringe. Like, the UFO community is already quite fringe to the mainstream, but then the fringe of the UFO communities are the abductees. I mean, the, not the abductees yet, but the contactees. Yes, okay, the contactees. So maybe we should talk about what happened to one of them. George Adamski. So what happened to George Adamski? So George Adamski was one of the first of the so-called contactees, people who claimed to have had direct interaction with aliens. And these aliens were Venusians, weren't they? They were Venusians. <laughs> okay. And, I mean, and this is interesting to me. I was thinking about this this morning. You know how I always think of an idea as like an organism that yes. works through an ecosystem. Yeah. And so as, a, some, as an organism in an ecosystem, it's subject to the laws of evolution. Okay. So if there's something that helps it to survive, that, characteristics, that characteristic will remain. If it has something that doesn't help it to survive, that characteristic gets weeded out. Well, something you see in the early days of the contactees are all these references to Venus. Yeah. about how Venus was always the place where the aliens were and they had this amazing large civilization. And this is one of the things that this guy, George Adamski, introduced. Right. I mean, other people had set science fiction novels on Venus, but Adamski was like, no, I've met them. I've uh, he, met the Venusians. Didn't he even get on a saucer and go to Venus and spend a couple of hours there? That's what he claimed. He also said that the far side of the moon... Uh, was covered in atmosphere and had massive like jungles and cities and bases and things like that. Now, the problem is, if that's part of your idea organism, those aren't things that are going to help it to survive in the modern era because we know about Venus now. We know that Venus is probably one of the worst places in the universe, yeah. that it rains sulfuric acid 
that like your skin would boil away in a second if you came even close to the surface. Venus is uniquely unpleasant. Yes. And we also have seen the other side of the moon. Not surprisingly, there are no bases and things like that there. So like the stuff that Adamski says is just factually incorrect and impossible. Right. Because Adamski was himself a bit of a con artist. And Ruppelt, Captain Ruppelt from Blue Book, who we've talked about before, actually meets with Adamski. Okay. And says... Well, he's got these eyes that you can't help but believe. He's got these unbelievably honest eyes. Right, right, right. And then he talks, and you realize that he is just 100% con man. Okay. And that was Ruppelt's finding about Adamski. He's just a con man who has realized that flying saucers are, like, as we've said, front burner in society. This is a way that he can probably make a quick buck by telling these stories. And there's all sorts of spinoffs from this, there's people like Woody Derenberger. There are so many other people that then start coming forward, all with this Venusian concept of being contacted by aliens. Right. But that is not something that sticks around in the UFO zeitgeist. No, you're right. That's an interesting way of putting it. Because I was thinking as you were talking also, the very early um, fantasies about extraterrestrial life close by was on the moon. Yeah. So before we had gone to the moon, before we had very good telescopes. It's the moon, man. Exactly. And then it becomes Venus and Mars. Right. Which are far away, you know. And But now, I mean, we've sent things to both places. Certainly Mars, you can send things that last a lot longer. And there's nothing there. There may have been life on Mars at some oh, point. Oh, yeah. No, no. Well, there's, there's the evidence that Mars had water. Yeah. Which, but there's not much there right now. No. As far as we know, mm-hmm. right? And so you're right. Then now when you hear people trying to locate alien civilization... You got to go interstellar. Yeah, they're really far out. Yep. So Barker hears about Adamski, yep. thinks it's absolutely hilarious, gets himself... I don't know how he manages it, but him, him Barker that is, Shermer and you know, Barker's buddy, whose name, sorry, just escapes me, uh, they they somehow get a hold of some State Department letterhead and they forge a fake letter to Adamski, basically, you know, saying like, you're onto something, but don't say anything. Typical men in black kind of stuff. They send it off to him. He then waves this letter around as proof that he's actually onto something, again, strengthening this very idea that there are these men in black out there. Of course, the government, in their denial, and uh, this is lovely, we've we seen this with um, Soviet disinformation, when the denial actually strengthens the conspiratorial claims. So now when the government is denying this, everybody's like seeing it almost as proof that, of course, they've done it because they're denying it. Yeah, if you're in a relationship and you're like, hey, honey, I'm not cheating on you. Right. It's like, oh, I guess that person's cheating on me then. Barker... Does it, though, get worried at some point that because the State Department is like, they don't think this is funny. And, you know, this is a crime, like impersonating somebody from the State Department. If you're CIA, I guess you could do it. But if you're a civilian, you don't get to impersonate somebody from the State Department. And so Adamski is told a number of times to cease and desist. And, and through that, Barker actually gets worried that maybe he's crossed the line in his hoaxes and is going to get in trouble. So he destroys his typewriter and entombs it in a wall Yeah, that's being built. So very Edgar Allan Poe kind of solution to the problem. So Shermer later, he has this very, he has a 
sort of a reckoning with his conscience, he publishes a couple of articles in, I think, the Skeptical Inquirer in the 90s, where he really goes through his relationship with Barker. And he, he says here, and I have direct quotes, this is a direct quote, Barker participated in fraud, defrauding the UFO community, make money off his books. Well, that was essentially what Barker was trying to do, was he was, he was a hustler. Yeah. You know, like we said earlier, like he was trying to get films into movie theaters. He was selling school supplies and he made a killing off of writing these books. And I got to say, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, which was on the bestseller list, is a hard book to read. There are spelling errors throughout. There are sentences that don't have verbs in them. There are turns of phrases that are extremely awkward. There's not a single citation in it. And really what we're talking about here is the creation of the myth of the men in black. We have the reality as articulated by the CIA that, yeah, okay, look, you know, when somebody encounters a super secret project, we kind of tell them that they did not encounter it. And we have agents to deal with that. And then we have Barker's more... Theatrical. Theatrical, salacious, interesting rendition of it, which really brings... And guess which one sticks in exactly, the, pu- in the right? public which imagination. Which one becomes the, the myth that we have today. This all comes from Gray Barker. Yeah, because let's very quickly go back to that first story I told, which was mm. a true story. Right. But the thing that that F-100 pilot saw was not a UFO. It was not a flying saucer. It was an FO. It was a flying object, but it was identified. It was an SR-71. Right. and we It was have... a top secret spy plane. That's why the Air Force didn't want him talking. And here, on the, from that article that I've been citing, and here I quote, Over half of all UFO reports from the late 50s through the 60s were accounted for by manned reconnaissance flights, namely the U-2 over the United States. Yeah. Which, interestingly, and I've noticed this before and never clued in on it, the early U-2s were, had this metal sheen exterior. Later U-2s are painted black. Mm-hmm. Maybe for this reason, because what the silver U-2s would do is reflect sunlight very well. And that tends to be one of the common ways that UFOs are explained is that it's silvery. It's reflected sunlight off of some object that you can't see. Mm-hmm. You see the light, but not the object. And, and you wonder what the heck's going on. So that's an example of a time like also with Benowitz and Doty, where somebody has seen something or encountered something they shouldn't have seen, a special project, right? And um, the CIA or Air Force needs to kind of kind of take care of the mess. They go in there and they just check, are we dealing with responsible citizens who will keep their mouths shut? Or do we maybe need to do something to discredit them? Like tell them that they're actually dealing with aliens and UFOs. This is the thing about studying the UFO phenomenon, as we have done for like a decade at this point, you and I. It's so frustrating because you're constantly tripping over disinformation campaigns. Sometimes it's from the government. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's from a huckster. Like everybody is trying to sell you a bill of goods. And when you try to study the history of UFOs, you're just constantly falling over lies and lies and mistruths and cover-ups. And it's on one level fascinating because it's interesting to see that kind of, that, that operation in effect. But on the other hand, if we're actually trying to figure out what's going on, it's very, very frustrating. Well, and I remember experiencing 
that frustration as a younger version of myself. And often I would encounter this wealth of evidence. And I'd say, well, maybe I don't know what's happening, but there's got to be a there there. There's something there because there are all these reports from all these different groups. You know, you have people like Gray Barker, who I now know to be a fraud and a, and a perpetrator of hoaxes, throwing fuel on the fire. But then you also have the CIA throwing fuel on the fire. And then you have people who are having some kind of psychological issue, like the, uh, the Shaver mystery is probably somebody who's having kind of a, a break with reality. That was a person who claimed that there was like a civilization under the earth Right. So, and was publishing that in magazines in the 40s and 50s. Right, and exactly. Then, and it became a really big hit, but it was probably somebody who was suffering from a mental illness. And then you add to that things like sleep paralysis and how we tend to interpret ambiguous data based on the kind of things that we're expecting to see. And it really does seem, if you don't have all this information that we have in front of us now, that there's got to be something there. Yeah, and then I'll go on the radio for like an eight-minute interview. Right, and right. someone will say, so, like, Professor Radke, the American Air Force is now saying that they are chasing UFOs. Yeah. Should we believe them? And it's like, well, how in the world am I going to even begin to exactly. explain the gigantic mess of the UFO world? Exactly, because also uh, many of those listeners will know of some of these things, mm -hmm. right? And they'll know this you know, that, that, and this is what got the CIA into trouble. And maybe I should just end with that. Like, how is it that the CIA sort of got themselves in this mess? And I think the problem comes from a decision that they made in the early 50s. And I'm going to actually quote again, and this is the Haynes article. I'm going to give you a longer passage. CIA reacted to the new rash of sightings. Okay, these were sightings in 1952. There was just a lot of them. By forming a special study group within the Office of Scientific Intelligence and the Office of Current Intelligence to review the situation. Edward Tuss, acting chief of the OSI Weapons and Equipment Division, reported for the group that most UFO sightings could be easily explained. Nevertheless, and this is the key, he recommended that the agency continue monitoring the problem in coordination with the ATIC. That's the Air Force. He also urged that CIA conceal its interest from the media and the public in view of their probable alarmist tendencies to accept such interest as confirming the existence of UFOs. Basically, uh, the CIA decides that they're going to deny that they are looking into the UFO phenomenon because if they said they were, they're worried that this will lend credence to people who believe that the UFOs are extraterrestrials. But by doing that and continuing this denial throughout the 50s and 60s, they seem to give Uf UFO researchers precisely the evidence that suggests that there is a massive cover-up and that they must therefore be looking at UFOs and hiding the secrets. Ah, uh, the law of unintended consequences is a cruel mistress. <laughs> so here's, I think, how we should end this. So we, we were talking about Gray Barker, and he was kind of, you know, a huckster and a con man, and he, he was promoting con men like Adamski, and basically anything to make a buck at a time when the American public was super interested in UFOs and flying yeah. saucers. And in doing so... 
he kind of created part of our understanding of what flying saucers and aliens were. Yeah. Because, like, he influenced movies, and then those movies would influence people, and we would just sort of form this idea of what it means to be visited by extraterrestrials. But that's not all he did. Because as we go from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s, the UFO phenomenon is taking increasingly a darker turn for Mm -hmm. reasons that we'll talk about in future episodes when we get into things like cattle mutilation. Right. And towards the end of his life, Barker is interacting with the next generation of conspiracy theorists. And in particular, he's interacting with a man named William Cooper. Okay. And he's corresponding with him. And William Cooper is somebody who would go on to write Behold a Pale Horse, one of the most important conspiracy texts, I think, of all time. Not, we don't like it. Well, no, but it's important. It's important. And it would go on then, that book would go on to form so much of what we see happening in the 90s in the conspiracy world, which again takes sort of a strange and dark and violent twist. Yep. But like, what did, what do you think Gray Barker thought of his own legacy? Well, apparently, so this comes from a close friend of his, it started, he started to sour. I mean, he had been having fun with it for a long time, pulling these hoax, making fake flying saucer photographs, sending crank letters, like doing crank phone calls to make people think that they were being chased by men in black. He was having a great time for a lot of his life. Yeah, and apparently when he would give public talks in the 60s, there was a sort of glint in his eye. You know, he's showing a picture that he and his buddy faked by having his buddy's son have on the end of a fishing line a wood cutout of a saucer and then have it, you know... And jiggle it around. And here he is giving a very serious presentation. And there was a, a little... Rye smile there, twinkle in his eye, if you, you know. So he was sort of, as you say, he was having fun with it. But things are less fun. And, and, and one a report says that by the time the late 70s and 80s roll around, he's using the same slides, showing the same films, but it's almost like he's dead inside. Mm-hmm. And a quote, which I thought was brilliant, it's like, like a whiskey preacher who lost his faith. Ah. Uh. You know, all that's left the is... The glint is gone. Yeah, all that's left is the whiskey. Yeah. You know? And so he ends... The, I mean, maybe the documentary ends this way as well, which any, if anyone's interested, is called Shades of Grey, which is incredibly hard to find because of Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. So like, it took, it took me forever to actually get a copy of this stupid thing. But that documentary on Grey Barker ends, I guess, the way we'll do, and that's with Grey Barker's poem... UFO is a bucket of shit. UFO is a bucket of shit. Its followers perverts, monomaniacs, dipsomaniacs, artists of the fast buck. And I sit here writing while the shit drips down my face in great rivulets. <laughs>